0: Hello everyone, my name is Frederick Giesin and today I'm joined by my dear friend Tom Morgan who writes a publication called The Attention Span at the KCP Group. I read every one of his publications every Sunday. We're talking about believability, resonance, finding flow, selling research, profits in the modern age, everything. It was a very personal conversation for me and for him and I really hope you find some value in it, some interesting ideas. As always, we're not talking stocks, but again, whether it comes to stocks or life advice, take everything with a grain of salt. We're not your personal coaches or investment advisors. I really hope you enjoy this conversation, and on we go. All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. This is, uh, I've been waiting for this to finally pick your brain. And I want to start with your, one of your most recent pieces. You talked about integration, and sort of this journey from, especially in the investing world, but I guess in other domains too, where people find somebody and in the beginning, it's their guru, then they discover all the flaws, they discard it, and maybe they arrive at some point of, of integration. Tell me a little bit about about that piece and, and how you think about that that journey.
1: Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's a fun place to start because you inspired it, which was that basically I realized that it's a it 's a pretty stupid character flaw of mine that basically almost everyone should have something in them that is of value, right, and even on Wall Street, like there was the old joke that if someone 's wrong hundred percent of the time they 're a perfect contra right like and and if if you 're telling me and I did this all the time, there are, you know there are certain like thought leaders, investors gurus you're seeing them you know literally blow up in contro- in controversy every single week on twitter and you watch the whole like information sphere discard that person because they got into a topic that was unacceptable or they did something that was unacceptable and they just basically get wholesale cancelled and whenever i see that now i'm just like oh you're not exercising discernment you don't have enough self confidence to say there's something in here that's valuable and there's something in here that's idiotic and i'm actually able to determine what those things are and i don't need someone else to tell me what that is because you know as we both know on wall street negativity sells better and sounds smarter and if you can say well you know actually this guy everyone loves him but you wouldn't realize that he got this huge call wrong in 1995 when he nearly lost all of his money and yada, 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 right? Like you, you sound very smart doing that. But if you can say as like the real master investors can, actually, you should realize that this guy's value is in X. And I sat down with a really smart PM and I brought the CIO of a hedge fund into him. And at the end of it, he was like, This guy thinks he's really good at exponential tech, but what I think he's really good at is calling bottoms in emerging markets because he basically looked at this guy's history and he looked at how he talked about certain things. And he was like, I'd actually say where this guy is sort of believable is not necessarily where he wants to be believable. And so what you're saying is, is that when you can take it to sort of the master, the master of the game level, you're able to pick and choose stuff out of people that really resonates with you. And I think the, the piece I wrote this weekend well about kind of character and in investing goes back to this awesome interview with Arnold Vandenberg that Bill Brewster did, I think in 2020, where Vandenberg talks about picking resonant ideas out of investors and then integrating them around your own character. and that's a really, really deep idea, but it also means that when things get really volatile, you have resilience because you're relying on yourself and not someone else's thesis
0: okay let's let's try to unpack this a little bit because i totally agree with you but it's also one of those things where i'm like yes i think you're right but i don't know that it's always straightforward right so first let's let's go back to this idea of believability i really enjoyed your piece on that and sort of this idea of what a person says they're good at is not necessarily in in some cases like people don't, don't actually have a firm handle of what it is that makes them successful but i wonder if the if a very successful investor isn't able to unpack what really makes them successful. How, how the hell is somebody supposed to figure it out from, from the outside? How, how do you think about that, that question and how to, how to like approach it when, when evaluating people? I don't
1: know. Like and I, I... I think that's something you'll probably have better ideas on than me because obviously like there's the lock like, skill continuum and no one even is really sure like how long a track record you need to determine whether you're actually good at it and all the countervailing factors and did you just get one long cycle right and all this sort of stuff again you can sort of you can sort of dissect most things out of anyone's performance over, over you know even a decade-long time horizon so like assessing believability is really, really hard and investing. I think the point I was trying to make in the piece I wrote on believability was a slightly different one, which is that expert intuition, which again, the the key word is expert. When these guys have sort of 30 years of experience, they'll they'll make a lot of their decision-making unconsciously and then kind of give give retroactive explanations as to why. And if they're in the investment world, those retroactive explanations can often be very good and they can often believe those retroactive explanations, but that wasn't why they did it. And so I guess sort of the the, the the disappointing way to answer that question is results will show if those people are good at it, but their explanations won't necessarily do that. And what was super funny, I think I told you that piece went to the, like, the front page of like uh, Hacker and News, and one guy kind of commented on, and, and never read the comments on Hacker News. But one guy commented on, like, this isn't the way that fund management works. No one ever makes gut decisions because it's sort of untradable knowledge. And it, simultaneously, I got a guy with 28 years' experience as a PM email me in my inbox, being like, "No, that's exactly how it works. We just can't tell people because, like, it, you you can't you can't tell consultants that." So you get into this really weird situation where the lock skill continuum gets blended, and the ability to give retroactive like explanations gets Blended, and I guess results are the ultimate arbiter. But I think it's one of the great problems in investing, and I don't
0: think I've got it figured out. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And I mean, I spent one year in institutional consulting, right? And it's very, very interesting that I mean, I see this in in kind of all all the time now that the the allocators' desire for something like for for manufactured stable return, it's just like people people build products around it and i guess in the hedge fund world sometimes um it leads sort of to this obfuscation of like this is what we actually do but we have to present it in a certain way so that such that it you know it is a product that actually gets gets bought but actually I, I i realized we didn't set the table maybe we can kind of spend a, a minute on your journey and sort of setting setting the table for how you got that exposure right you sometimes mention how you met some of these investment managers and like got that exposure. Like just just let's let's go back to to the start for just a minute and, and give give everyone a sense for like how you got that exposure and how you what kind of what your baseline is of of seeing these people in, in action.
1: Yeah, sure. I've always sort of been a passive observer on the sidelines and, and the least intelligent person in a room. I started on Wall Street in 2005, messed around for a few years, very unsuccessfully before that in different jobs, but was lucky to get offered a, a job on Wall Street, made it through 16 rounds of interviews. I was told it was I was down to the last candidate, and then they uh, decided to go with no one, but eventually got hired a few months later for a different desk at the same firm. I ended up uh, spending about 14, 15 years selling US equity research uh, to first institutions in London and then institutions in New York. I spent a year selling data, credit card data, and then I had, as you know, like a crushing three-year midlife crisis where I wandered the professional desert for a very long time and, and sort of consumed a lot of spiritual literature and a lot of non-financial literature. And, and now my employers, the KCP Group, are a kind of smart wealth management group that we run $13 billion for a, for a pretty diverse range of clients. And I explore issues that our clients are curious about and that I'm curious about and try and meet the most interesting people that we can like you and, and try and have the most interesting conversations that we can, you know, perhaps a little bit further up Maslow's hierarchy than, than traditional wealth management. Cause I think, you know, something we can talk about a bit later, but I think the industry has moved on a little bit from that. And maybe, you know, my own crushing midlife crisis gives me some sort of, you know, uh, direct personal experience of what people are looking for beyond the mundane, at least when they, when they'll give themselves a little bit of time to look.
0: Mm-hmm. And needless to say, but I'll, still say it slash put it into into the email obviously i recommend everybody subscribe to your stuff cuz it's excellent i read it every week and i always get i always get more out of it than than i can chew frankly but you you meant you already mentioned kind of this concept of resonance right and and i think you with this sort of what you described as midlife crisis or this sort of going through a, a period of of just of a break from your from your path before that and and trying to figure out something new i wonder how resonance works for you what what are ideas that you pursue how do you decide what you spend your time on what's how do you because there is sort of this infinite amount of information right And, and and there's so many ideas you could dig into i'm just i'm just curious how you make those decisions and how you decide like what does resonance mean to you
1: i think it's a it's a question of limitless depth and it's unbelievably interesting. So, like, as you know, and, and maybe some listeners will know, I'm, like, relentlessly obsessed with this uh, thinker called Ian McGilchrist. And he wrote a book called The Master in Emissary, which I read two years ago, and it changed my entire perception of the world. And he's just followed it up with a masterpiece, which took him 10 years to write, called The Matter With Things. And the shorthand is that basically it's how the structure of the two hemispheres of our brain and, and the characters with which they interact with the world Influence both our experience of the world and also the structure of our culture and society around us. I would urge anyone to read it, despite its ridiculously intimidating 1,400-page length. The thing that I'm taking away from it, and there are like 50 things, but one of them, which is relevant to your question, is our exploratory attention is a better guide of our future growth than our narrow attention. And this is sort of this wild idea that is itself a sticky idea for me when I first heard it. So I was I was in Newark Airport in the security line and I heard this podcast and the, the speaker just says, Carl Jung had this idea that your future self directed your interests in the presence to guide your growth. And I was like, well, that sounds mental, but it's also kind of interesting. And at least without... Believing sort of the the present and future aspect to it, it is fairly well known that your right hemisphere is taking in about you know a million times more information, maybe a trillion times more information than in your left hemisphere, and it it directs your attention towards what you should be paying attention to next. And I believe that we feel the direction that we should be going in next as resonance, and so basically. If you regard the information landscape as sort of this three-dimensional field around us, we should be navigating that gradient based on how interested we are in topics around us and so, and i think a lot of those a lot of that interest is unconscious to us so i'll give you a specific example i believe that certain story structures transmit a huge amount of evolutionarily beneficial information it's why you see the same story stru- structures come up again and again and again but if you ask people why they like those stories they can't answer the question like what's your favorite movie it's Shawshank Redemption. Why is Shawshank Redemption your favorite movie? And you're a bit like, uh, it's a good story, like there's good acting, right? You can't articulate it. You don't know why it's gripped your attention because your conscious self hasn't really thought about it. It just knows it grips your attention. And in the same way that you cannot control what you're interested in. And I guess, like, without meandering around too many different directions, one thing that becomes directly relevant to people in finance is that in my own experience and and subsequently i've noticed that when people stop getting interested in things it is signaled that there's no more growth left for them in a topic and they need to move on, either professionally or personally, onto a different thing. But because the frictions are so great, particularly in finance, people cannot move to a different thing. But your interests and what you're gripped by and what you're passionate about are much more significant in terms of directing your future growth. And so that's like that's almost a meta comment because that's that idea was resonant to me. And also, it has directed my future growth in a lot of very strange ways.
0: Yeah, I think this is such an interesting topic because there is what you just described, right? You have sort of this exploratory attention, and maybe you feel this little tug like, oh, this thing is interesting, right? And you sort of, you, you, on one level, maybe you realize that, oh, I should spend more time with this. Just like, you know, keep track of this thing. But then there's all these other influences, right? And I'm thinking primarily like social, right? Like, like, here's this thing that's maybe interesting, but there's also my Twitter feed and like, oh, here are all these things that are getting a lot of attention from other people. And so those must be interesting, right? Like there's a million ways to get, at least that's how I experience it, to get pulled away from what resonates with me. And I think it's, I think it's for two reasons. It's it's for that sort of that, that social redirection, right? Like the mimetic desire. And I, I know you hate that term, but like kind of the, just the interest in what other people are interested in and, and maybe desire for to have that too. And also fear in terms of, oh, if I'm pursuing this direction, I'm going to have to leave something behind and give something up. And the, the friction you just... Or that the right that this cost of making any kind of change, and and I'm wondering how you think about that now, sort of a few years in in retrospect, and and then there's a bunch of other things um, that we should touch on that kind of all. That's what I love about everything you do. Like everything is connected. Like there's just. Well,
1: here, here's another connection that I think answers that question and illustrates another point that's that's been enormous for me, which was something that I I, I tweeted about last weekend, which is this Moloch and Slack, right twin essays by scott uh, siskins they're both super crazy long meditations on moloch is definitely the scariest thing i've ever read and sort of the the tldr is effectively moloch is what happens when any system targets something abstract and by abstract it just means you know human created money power engagement algorithms right And anytime you target something implicit for its own enjoyment, things go really well, right? And your life unfolds in this beautiful synchronistic way, but everything has to be done for implicit enjoyment. So it's something that you and I talk about a lot, right? Which is motivations, right? Like if we're following something we're intrinsically interested in, we'll tend to get engagement as a byproduct. But if you're tweeting for the purposes of getting engagement, often that, that can backfire as a, as a business model and as a way to live your life because you're targeting the abstract thing. And I think that concept is applicable to sort of everything, right? Because the reason why people get stuck in these, these holes is because they've targeted something abstract and there's never any life in the abstract thing, right? It's not. I'm not saying it's bad to care about money money is essential but if money is the only thing that you target eventually there will be no life right it is very unlikely that you will live a fulfilled life as a byproduct of pursuit of money but it is very likely that you will get money as a byproduct of, of the pursuit of a meaningful life and it doesn't really matter how much money you get if your life is is truly meaningful right as long as you have a certain amount. And now I know that can sound a little bit idealistic and I'm not saying the balance is easy. In fact, the balance is probably the hardest thing you can ever do. And staying on that beam is on the hardest thing you can ever do. But it is amazing that you can basically apply Moloch on one side and Slack on the other. Although you could, know, Slack is a terrible word. All the words for the other thing are awful. They're like, you know, love or the Tao, the path, the universe, life itself. You know, All of these things, they're all nonsense words because they're trying to encapsulate something that cannot be abstracted, right? You cannot make that word into an abstract thing. You just have to think of it in different, thing, in different ways, which, again, goes back to everything that we've just been talking about, which is that resonance, right? You know when you're pursuing that thing because it's resonant and because you feel meaningful. It, it feels meaningful. And so when you're directing your own attention around the Internet, Moloch is everywhere, basically being like, here, look at a pair of boobs, you know, like here, look at some some Twitter beef that's irrelevant. Here, look at something that is that is not self directed attention. I mean, it's fine to do it occasionally, right? But it's not self directed attention. And I think the difference is is how you feel when you consume it. That like when you're going down a rabbit hole that is that is it is growing you, it feels challenging and meaningful. But when you're just doom scrolling, you feel like crap.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's sort of the difference between. Being in the flow of a, an activity that's challenging to just the right extent right, where you're growing without being completely overwhelmed versus binging on potato chips and, and just sort of having a good time in that moment. And then coming out of that sort of that dream state and being like, wait, what, what did I just spend an hour doing? And and it's just sort of you, you, it's almost like you wake up out of out of trance.
1: I want to I want to say something here because I, yeah, yeah. I had I had I had an insight last week that maybe is like super obvious, but had never really occurred to me in this way before. So one, like the passage of time is a way that you navigate the 3D gradient, right? When you're exactly on your flow, you move at the same speed of the as the world. So it feels like time is not passing because you're moving at the same speed as the world. If you're out of your flow, time feels like it's grinding, right? Like when you're really bored and you're not engaged in something, time flows really slowly. And when you're like way out in the right hemisphere, Time just feels like like it, it's moving super crazy rapidly, and there's all these really weird accounts of, of, of how that feels. The most desirable thing is to be, like, exactly on the center line. And almost everyone knows when they're on the center line because they just have this intrinsic feeling of meaningfulness, which we describe as the flow state. And what's, uh, I spent a long time kind of obsessed with the flow state. And Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi wrote that book that everyone's read. And in the West, people interpret it as, like, a performance tool that... You use flow to become a better tennis player or a better trader, and it's your your it's peak performance, right? And then I was listening to this uh, lecture from John Paveki, who I'm you know I'm interviewing for work later this week, and there was something that came to me, and it was basically the shaman is a guy. In a community, but you can use, you know, hero, prophet, comedian, visionary, entrepreneur for the same term. And it's someone who uses the flow state to go into a different experience outside of the existing paradigm and see something else. So the example he gives is something called soul flight, which is when the shaman would get themselves into a trance state and they would experience the world from above and it would give them a completely new framing on an issue. And then they could come back and speak to the rest of their tribe in a way that would heal them and reorient them back in the right direction. And Viveki is like, that's what a prophet is. A prophet doesn't Predict the future. A prophet just goes back to everyone and says, "Guys, you've gone off course a little bit. Here's where the Tao is. Right? Here's where the meaningful thing is. I'm going to show you guys where it is." And the thing that that kind of blew me away because I'd never thought of it this way is people that spend more time in flow are more likely to have insights that allow them to reorient their life in the right direction. So Viveki says, like, the more time you spend in flow, the more of an insight cascade you have, right? The more insights you have, the better you are at calibrating your life towards that meaningful thing. Right? It's a it's kind of a really weird idea, and I hadn't really thought of it that way before. Does that make sense?
0: It so it does, you know, it's one of those things, I, I think I picked this up from you, where it's like, this makes sense, and I've never heard somebody before articulate it this way. But now that I've heard it, I'm like, yes. However, it can lead one to say like, oh, okay, so I need to just spend, I just need to max out my time and flow, right? So I'm going to optimize my morning routine and everything I do and, and go back to exactly what you just described. And I'm going to use flow in this not in an indirect way, but in a direct way. Like I just want to get into the flow state. I'm going to manipulate my environment or the, my work, like how whatever I do, I'm going to restructure it to, to an extent to maximize the flow and then everything will be great. And you come back to like using it as this abstraction, this tool, right? And like, isn't that the danger of like, it's sort of this like trying without trying idea. Like once you tell me that it's it's good to try without trying, or once you tell me it's it's good to have flow, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do it. And with that intentionality, I'm going to wreck the whole, like, is that, what do I do with this idea? You know, I I, I like it, but like, what do I do now?
1: It's so insightful. And it makes me think of Pixar's Soul, right? Like, have you seen Pixar's Soul? It's great. Like it's, it's the kind of movie you could only make now because it's like, it's just raw existentialism. And I can't believe that made, they made that movie for a kid, for kids. Right. But basically the big theme is that the main guy is a, is a very talented jazz player and he gets, I don't want to spoil the movie for people, but he gets his big shot playing jazz and it's this transcendent experience. And halfway through the movie, he goes into sort of this, this other realm and one of his guides says here's the here's the 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 area of lost souls the people that haven't found haven't found meaning in life and haven't found their flow but also people that get addicted to flow get lost in here as well, right? The people that spend all of their time in the zone and are just bliss junkies just chasing it, they get stuck here as well. And at the end of the movie, he has this, this peak experience performing jazz and he walks out and there's Dorothea Williams, this jazz singer who's recruited him off the street to, to have his like life-changing moment. And he says, well, what happens next? And she says, well, we come back and do it tomorrow. And he, and he kind of gets broken by this idea in that, like, Like, this is a bad answer to a question, but it's sort of the way I'm thinking about it, which is that, you know, the thing that, that Jim and, and you talk about, which is human adulthood, right? You're using these things to become a, a more engaged and adjusted adult. You're using them as sort of mechanisms to get more present. You don't want to be chasing the experience for the sake of the experience it, itself. And it reminds me of something, uh, an insightful philosopher I spoke to recently, he was like, the dangers with like the psychedelic movement in America right now is people are going to start working shipping the plants and the experiences that they that they provide rather than the insights that they get from them and so like i don't know how you get out of that trap where it's like am i just using this to get addicted to the insights that i get from flow am i using flow to become a visionary like it's i don't know how you i don't know how you close that paradox
0: yeah no i think as, as soon as you start to go down the mental path of i'm going to use this as a shortcut and I'm going to use this as a tool, and I'm going to abstract it away from what it used to be. Right, it was maybe a ceremony or some like. If I'm writing, I mean, sometimes I get into and and so this is actually another thing where it's like I know there there are certain things I enjoy doing that sometimes you get into flow and there's like, okay, I'm I'm working on a piece and like I'm I, I get into flow state and like this this really just it just flows it just works and but it's not always like that and sometimes it's the opposite it's a total grind and i haven't figured out how to be consistently you know in in the sort of the the better on the on the better track or the more flowy track and it and i still sort of have to come to terms with that because like you could you could then say like oh does that mean you know i think there's this worship of like um now like you're identifying with your occupation and with your job and that means it always has to be fun you always have to find fulfillment with it and i think i pretty much subscribe to that where it was like no i want to do this thing and it's got to be you know it's got to be the thing that fulfills me i'm that person who does that thing and like really identify with it and then kind of expect it to lead to that flow state like quote unquote like i'm a writer now and that means writing for me leads to flow state and like if it's not like that, and if it becomes a grind, then you sort of start to doubt the whole thing. Like, wait, am I on the wrong track? Should I be, you know, doing something entirely different? Should I just be a dog walker? Like, I, I love dogs. Like, maybe go in a different direction. So I feel like once you start, you know, worshipping the plans, or like, once you get into that mindset, or like, get, you you elevate this state to, you know, I don't know, I, I this is maybe me long in a long-winded way of saying, like, I, I struggle with the same same idea.
1: This ruined my life. <laughs> Right, this whole idea ruined my life decisively for very many years, which was that basically I had an intellectual understanding of all of these things, but my intellectual standing got in my way, understanding got in my way. Right, so I left Wall Street in I think twenty seventeen, started my crisis, and I said that for my second act, it needed to be something meaningful. So I went to Fordham to study social work. I looked into being a union analyst. I looked into being a psychologist. I became a coach. You know, I started a coaching company. All of it was based on what I wanted to do, which was help people in stuck spots. But every time I tried to do something, the door would slam shut in a really like devastating way. Things would not work out for me. And I was also not intrinsically interested in any of these avenues. I was just telling myself I was because they were meaningful. So I was saying this is meaningful because obviously it's meaningful to be a social worker, but it wasn't actually interesting. Those textbooks were killing me, right? But I was, I was holding the wheel too tightly because I was trying to redirect myself into something that was obviously meaningful. <laughs> And it was only when after a a series of like catastrophic failures and massive, massive depression that I basically gave up and started just doing things for intrinsic benefit and intrinsic pleasure that my employers found me in this role found me in the last year of my life has been inexpressibly fun, challenging, like It's, as you know, it's not fun writing, right? Anyone, uh, someone said to me, if you're having fun writing, you're not a writer, right? Like it's it's attritional, but it's still... The worst advice I've ever heard is grind it out, right? There's a subtle difference between grinding it out and being in flow. Flow does not mean bliss, right? It means something that's intrinsically challenging where time passes quickly or at least you don't notice the passage of time, right? Grinding it out is like a death match. And like, I think you have to be sensitive to that gradient because that is sort of a better indicator of where you should be headed. The problem with all of this is overthinking will destroy it. And I found that out to my detriment. So you get in this awful paradox where it's like, don't think of an elephant, don't think of an elephant, don't think of an elephant try not to control your life and yet when you're in a horrible dark hole being told that you shouldn't control the direction of your life is paralyzing and trying to control it too much is paralyzing so like it is like you know if anyone's listening to this that is in that situation i can't make light of it because it is probably the worst experience of your life but it is true that that information gradient and, and aiming towards things that you love is is a potential clue as to the way out
0: yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I'm kind of running this experiment in real life, real time, right? Where I'm like, everything that you describe sounds like that. That resonates. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to like make a living as a writer, and like that's not very straightforward. And then coming out of that, not straightforwardness, there's there's always this there's this balance of like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I just gotta, just gotta grind. Just gotta keep at it. Like, you know, you have to just uh, keep going and there's all these motivational quotes and all that that stuff. And you're like, okay, just, just have to be persistent. And then there's also the the flight instinct of like, what you're doing is madness. And you gotta like, just, you know, you'll, you'll find the flow somewhere else. And, and this intense, these nights spent just like agonizing over like, you know, if if I just gone insane, should I just like, you know drop it all and and do something else and sort of finding in 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 between there finding finding some kind of flow or just some kind of direction is is interesting and comes back though i think to what you mentioned in the beginning finding the thing that interests you intrinsically where you're like and this is maybe a kind of a, a it always strikes me a little bit as silly is like oh if, even if i didn't get paid for this i'd i'd still do it and but but if you do find things where you're just like, oh, I just, I just always do that. I always enjoy this activity. Like, I'm always, like, pulling together these different ideas and writing it up. And I want to share it. I want to explain it. And then, like, okay, that there's something there. And just, like, have to figure out how to express it. Like, how, in which way the world actually needs it. Right? That's the other thing. Like, just because I think something is interesting doesn't mean a lot of other people do. So I have to sort of find the overlap between myself and do want to call it the market but certainly like the market for attention
1: you've stumbled on the, exactly the thing i was going to say next but well, you didn't stumble on it you know it right which is that the the nuance of the follow your bliss ideology particularly when applied to young people and the reason why it, it's so pernicious is basically if you think you're a great punk rock singer and no one wants to listen to your music, you're probably not a great punk rock singer, right? Like, or just, you should be doing something different. And and I, I don't know how you square that over the long term, but there's this whole idea, it's about what you can do plus what the world needs. And you you can't neglect either of those things because it's a it's a conversation, right? Your flow with the world, you have to be open to feedback from the world. And that is the biggest conceptualization that i think is missing from western culture is that requires vulnerability and an openness to feedback but also an awareness to the synchronicities and coincidences that are going to show you that you're going in the right direction and i think for me like referring it specifically to my own story was that like when i was in this highly abstracted disembodied hellish depressed state I was still writing about like spiritual concepts, but in this very kind of like jumbled, incoherent way as I was trying to find my way through the through things. But also I had no resonance because I was so abstracted. So I couldn't put anything back together around truth. And everything seemed like a solution to me because I was drowning. So I was just reaching for all these different ideologies. And what happened was, is that the moment I assembled these ideas around something that I actually understood, that I had some intuition on, which was finance. My current employers came to me and offered me the job, right? So like I put it out there, I sent it to my old like, client distribution list, and I got and I ended up it ended up leading to a job, right? But I was producing all this stuff that the world didn't want and still doesn't, right? Because I shouldn't be writing spiritual nonsense because I'm not good at it. There are people that are better, there are are a million people that are better at writing spiritual nonsense. The way that I see my niche, which is still evolving, and I I don't think I've mastered it, is sort of finding perennial concepts and relating them back to investing, you know, building this Trojan horse from rationality to spirituality, right? Those are the things that are interesting to me. And I think there's an appetite for them, but just straight spirituality.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, especially because it's so, I think it's so easy to kind of find the, the, the shiny new object or something that's interesting, but just because you enjoy learning about something doesn't mean yet it rises to the level of, I should also be the person who, you know, does something with the thing, whether it's writing about it or building a company around it or investing in it, right? Like some, some things are just, it's interesting. And you integrate it, and then you know it it, is, and and it's just that. What what I really enjoy, I just wanted to to pick something up that you just mentioned. The sort of uh, something that you you mentioned a lot is sort of identifying universal ideas or themes across different domains, and finding the ideas that kind of are recurrent in different whether it's you know spiritual or philosophical domains or like that that kind of rise up in in kind of business and finance and just with with a different jargon and I'm, I'm curious how how you go about that and whether you think there's any way to do that systematically or whether it's just reading a lot and talking to a lot of people or like how what what does that idea mean to you because I've, I've seen you just write about it. it's like i'm trying to find these ideas that um recur across different disciplines and those are the important ideas. What what does that mean and like how does it come th- like yeah.
1: Yeah, it's so like That was always what interested me in college. So I was really bad at most things, but I was quite good at what back then was called politics, which was basically looking at systems of government and the way that people behaved and incentive structures. And I was good at sort of looking at all the patterns and connecting dots and identifying sort of overarching themes. And then when I got a job in finance, the way that research sales worked back then and still kind of works is that you get 50 to 100 emails every morning from your analyst team and then you have to call your clients and relay the most important insights from those 50 to 100 emails knowing that everyone else on the street is doing the same thing at the same time so it has to be relevant to your clients it has to be what the world needs right like it is sort of weirdly, it's coming to me now, it is kind of this Taoist combination, right? It has to be what they need and it has to be what you're interested in. And so you're you're kind of finding this, this synthesis at the same time as being able to gauge market demand for something, which is really weird because this has only occurred to me as it's coming out of my mouth. But what it started off for me as, is I would just write an email where I would list all of the insights that came out of our firm. So there was this early pattern recognition for what does a hedge fund guy find interesting? And then you've got this sense of resonance when the way the analyst is speaking right now, he really knows this. He really gets it. And he he's maybe seen something or heard something that gives him an, an intuitive sense when something's going to change. And then if you're really respectful with your client's time and you communicate that to them, you develop this reciprocal relationship that moves beyond sales because you're adding value to their process, right? You're not selling them anything. You're showing them something that's of intrinsic worth to them, which is another distinction we can talk about. But it's it's something I feel quite strongly about in sales that maybe it doesn't make me a great salesperson. And then basically like after my crisis during the the previous years, I got better at integrating ideas from other sources into that work. And it became more than just my bank's research. And then after the crisis, I've moved to sort of a more synthesis stage where I get all the ingredients that I've assembled from my career to date and from inhaling the internet. And I'm trying to synthesize them all into something that communicates something of reasonably lasting value. Because if you're just talking about market moves that week, that's a massively commoditized piece of information and I'm not very good at it. Right? Uh, And so it's sort of leaning into what I felt I was good at, which was pattern recognition. But, it, but all pattern recognition is fundamentally creative. Another word that I absolutely despise. But basically, the act of synthesis is fundamentally creative. You're bringing something new into the world that was not there before because it's a completely new combination of ideas. And the world will respond to that if it's useful and if it's true and that sort of is what i'm still trying to do with like varying degrees of success
0: okay so so let's let's okay so so there's too many strands for me to like mentally follow them all right now but like let's start with kind of identifying the lasting value and what you just said, sort of the intrinsic value, like rather than trying to sell somebody, rather than being like, okay, you should, you, you got to read this thing. Like I'm trying to push you on this. Like, and you've, you've said this before in, in a different context, but you said like you're interested in finding information with the highest ROI. And I think it's sort of the same idea, right? Like you're getting 50 emails, here's 50 analysts, everybody has an idea and you. it's your job without being able to spend, you know, days on it to figure out which of these has sort of lasting value, which of these are like, how do you, I'm not even sure. I, I think I would get completely lost in trying to like dive into the details, but like, but it strikes me now that it was the perfect training for what you do now.
1: Yeah. It's like those things that only make sense looking backwards, right? Like, it's super weird. And I, I, I... All these like really deep thinkers that I've run into, they're always like, yeah, my life made no sense until I looked at it backwards. Now I realize it's like this perfect trajectory, which isn't much comfort when you're in a transition space. Trust me. It's, it's the same concept again, which is the idea of the profit, right? So like the worst, the worst sales situation, having been in it, right? Well, the best sales situation is when you're selling something you know is true, you know your client needs And you know will add value to them. Then it is the best job in the world because your conscious and your unconscious are aligned. You know you're speaking the truth and you know you're adding value to the other person and you are in conversation with them, right? The worst job in the world is when you have no alignment with what you're selling, right? You know the other person doesn't want it. You know you're completely out of integrity and it will eat your soul. So you are doing the same job Notionally, you're in sales, right? But everyone that's done a sales job knows when you're selling something you know does no one else needs, like even if you manage to successfully sell it, you feel like crap. Cause you're like, I just I brought something of no value into the world. And it's like this guy that's the profit, that he's gone outside of the system. He's gone into flow a lot, whatever you want to call it. He's seen the stuff that's actually true and of value because it resonates, right? So when I heard the analyst speak and I knew the what the analyst was saying was true or likely to be profitable or wildly different from what everyone else was saying in the market, I had enough reps that I could pick that up and communicate it. And I'm not saying it was right. I'm not even saying it was always true. It just has a higher return than other things. And that, again, is sort of like this. It's this thing that, like, to fund manager performance, you can't articulate it afterwards. But something you and I were talking about before we started recording is the idea of how things sound.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, by the way, the second time that you mentioned, like, oh, the analyst sounded like X. Right. Like they sound and I'm and I'm just just get into that. And like, how do you pick that up? Whether it's an analyst or somebody else, you're in conversation, you're interviewing a fund manager or an entrepreneur. Like, what is what do you look for when you're trying to, like, figure out whether they're in resonance or like just because you you keep mentioning this. I'm like, what is how does how does Tom pick that up? What does that mean when somebody sounds in a way, you know, like wh- what does that mean?
1: I'm not sure I'm good at it. But what I'll say is that guys, I think I'm good at it. A lot of them have just sat in like 3,000 management meetings. And, and there's this Taoist concept of, of De, DE, right? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which is like a person that moves completely at tune with his unconscious. He's completely aligned as an individual and he will move through the world with supernatural ease and be fabulously successful, but possibly in unconventional ways, right? We can detect those people. It's raw charisma. They're genuine. We want to be around them. And then there's the people that are out of alignment. And there's this momentary dissonance because they're lying, which, you know, in the McGilchrist sense would be the dissonance between the hemispheres, because one, hem- one hemisphere routinely confabulates and lies the left hemisphere when it has access to less information and the right hemisphere never lies which was described as the most stunning finding from split brain research from one of the top researchers right so that like the idea is is that if you lie there's this momentary like microscopic dissonance either in your voice or in the way that you're behaving with other people and by contrast when someone is completely embodied you can just hear it. And someone sent me a book, actually, my my one partner at the front, Tom, which was one of those books that we both agreed was like probably like 80% nonsense, but 20% there's something really to it. And it's, a, it, it's called Sacred Sounds, I think. And it's this idea that all living things resonate at the same frequency, like 10 Hertz apart from us, because we're kind of like abstracted from this divine frequency. Right. And we, our ability to abstract ourselves through, through abstract concepts takes us away from the flow of the life, like the garden of Eden metaphor. It gives us this tremendous power of the world, but it abstracts us from it. And so like the idea is, is that, The shaman had the ability to heal people by speaking to them. And there's a really interesting, like, funny moment in a documentary I was watching, again, about plant medicine, where, like, it used to be that the shaman would take the plant medicine and speak to people and heal them through speaking to them, right? And then the Westerners came down they're like, I didn't just take an 11-hour flight to be spoken to by a shaman. Give me the whole stuff, right? And they would take the whole thing themselves. But it's this crazy idea that when you're hearing a prophet or a shaman speak the truth to you, it snaps you back to that frequency, right? It snaps you back to the truth rapidly. And that can heal you because it's taken you out of alignment. And that's something that Joseph Campbell talked about that took me years to understand, which was that myths were there to harmonize the mind and body, which could you could see as, as the left and right hemisphere. And it's this really weird idea that I couldn't I couldn't contextualize for a really, really long time. But it's basically this idea that if, you, if you're told a story that reflects the outside world or reflects your own reality accurately, it brings you back into harmony with the outside world. And, that, and, it, and, and we can get stuck off in our heads in all these abstract concepts that have no bearing towards the truth. And we can tell ourselves stories about ourselves that aren't true at all. And it takes someone coming back to us and telling us the truth, however unpalatable that is, that will snap us back to that frequency. And I guess it's sort of a long-winded way of saying, like, you know it when you hear it. But it often sounds like a cliché. Because a lot of truths are cliches, right? But when people say cliches, it just sounds like they kind of own them because they embody them.
0: Huh. Okay. So let me just take a step back. Cause I think so, first of all, I, I think there's sort of just having this baseline of these thousands of meetings, I think that that strikes me as right. That's where the expert intuition comes in, probably a little bit, right? Because I mean, you need you need to I guess you need to have enough interaction with people that are out of alignment to recognize this slight dissonance or or maybe to recognize when people are in alignment. But the more interesting question to me is, and this is maybe particularly applicable to, to us, I don't know that it applies to everybody, right? But I'm not particularly religious, right? Like I'm certainly not consulting a shaman. Like, I'm like, what is the modern equivalent? And like you already alluded to it, there are certain people like who go outside the system, bring back an idea, but that's, Leaving that aside, when you say that a shaman or like a myth or like this kind of mechanism snaps you back to the truth, right? Like, where do you find that? Where do we find that today? Because there's a lot of things that snap you, that pull you away. I think this goes all the way back to the beginning. There's a lot of things that kind of distract you and that pull you away from your intrinsic interest, right? Where there's that slight resonance, like particularly thinking about media and there's just all of these influences and that, that are impressed on you and trying to get your attention. And you're like, okay, I want to go back to the, to the truth. And, you know, when I hear somebody speak about an old myth, I'm like, oh yeah, I recognize there's something there. But when I read a book that like it, I, I'm not snapping back to the truth that, that easily, I think sometimes So I'm like, I'm wondering where does one find that today? Like, where, where do we even look for that?
1: I mean that's sort of the perennial question, right? Because if you can find the answer to that question, you'll find you'll find your metaphorical salvation. I think the, I think there's a, like an uh, there's an interesting way to think about it. Which, is, if I haven't completely alienated everyone listening so far, I'm definitely going to do it now. Which is uh, this idea that you and I have, have I, I think, found again, like. "Quote unquote," resonant, which is that a lot of other cultures locate the center of their cognition in their heart centers, in their chests, right? And and, and probably the most interesting article I wrote, I read last year was about that, and it, it's it's this sense of deeply embodied cognition in a way that has been very, very much disregarded and maligned by the West. And one of the things that McGilchrist talks about that I find incredibly interesting is that the right hemisphere has a competitive relationship with the right, and it will not hand over control. So effectively, your intellect will denigrate your bodily sensation and your intuitions because it does not want to surrender control. And so the bit where this gets really dark, I think, is that There is a physiological experience that I would have disregarded had it not been a defining feature of the last 12 months of my life, where you get a heartfelt sense for what is true and your heart becomes quite a good arbiter of the direction you should be going in next. The rub is that I think a lot of us, for reasons I don't understand, do not have harmonious relationships between our heads and our heart. And often the I think of the distance between our head and our heart as the mile of, of, of crap that Andy Dufresne has to swim through in the Shawshank Redemption. It's all our traumas, all of our protections, all the things that prevent us from seeing the world clearly. But every time I see like a massive debate like spring up around cancellation of people or misinformation or disinformation all I think of is that this would not be a problem if most people were were much more grounded in their own bodies and able to determine for themselves what they felt was true so like it's a really really unsatisfying answer because basically I think it comes down to you doing the work however that is and for me it was like complete self destruction right like the the worst the worst two years of my life where i effectively let go of all the things that were preventing me from from seeing the world clearly and then now my discernment gets better with every passing month it's still bad right but it gets better And once you have that resonance that again you experience more as a felt sense than you do as sort of an intellectual like an intellectually pleasing moment it's this kind of aha moment which you feel rather than just like understand the more of those you have the more you kind of coalesce around a series of ideas in the sort of the Arnold Vandenberg sense of like you then suddenly start to integrate all these ideas and all these insights from all these different people because Because you're more sure
0: where you are in your own body so this is really interesting because first of all it completely resonates and and i do think in in my own experience so i used to be i'm say very disconnected from my emotions right like i'd push it all away and sort of try to be rational and it would completely lead me astray because then my guiding light were just these these ideas, like the reason I got into business or finance was like, just because of my dad was in in the field. And like, I wanted to connect with him. And like, there were these desires. And and then I'd be like, Oh, I want to be like X person, or I want to fit into this thing. And like, I, it just, it was all very, that, that part then came from the head. And I was always trying to make it work. And I couldn't figure out why, when I experienced it in real life, like it was, it was awful and not at all, like I imagined it. And so I totally connect with the idea that when you try to we, to to get to that resonance, you have to have that harmony or like access to how you actually feel about things, and you can't. And it's very easy to get get tricked by whatever software is running, right in in your mind, and whatever's been whatever you put in there. Getting to those aha moments, I, I still think there's a sort of there's there's a nuance here, which is the the recognizing this when it happens in the confusion in, in in the busyness that is the day, right? Like to me, and I think you wrote about once about boundary periods and like cultivating moments or periods in which in which that can occur. Because to me that's sometimes sometimes it's meditation, sometimes it's taking a walk, sometimes but it's usually something where I have to step away from the grind so to speak. Right. I'm trying to solve something on the page or I'm like I'm trying I'm like I'm tired. I'm like I'm just trying to do this. And unless I disengage, there's like I can't I can't see it. And then I and, and I'm so so tell me a little bit about how that works for you and how you think about finding these aha moments or like creating space for it or like I don't know how do, how do you get at that? How do you get better at, at any of this?
1: So the word for the opposite of Moloch is Slack, right? So when you're stuck in this relentless productivity of what you were saying, chasing something that was abstract, like the wrong goals in your life, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? We all do it. We've all done it. We all probably still do it, right? It's slack, which means that it's the ability to build 10 to 20% into your day of something that that is just not related to anything else and then you do get into this like infinite loop of like am i doing something productive to do something unproductive yada yada you just have to be very focused on the fact that the thing that you're doing is for its own intrinsic enjoyment right whatever that is and however dumb it is you just have to be doing it for your own intrinsic enjoyment and 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 struggling through that is is kind of the way to think about it but well, for me, it, it, like, I kind of beat myself up for not meditating, right? And for, for not doing all the things that the the, the morning routine of the billionaire said I should do. But I found that certain things work for me. Medium pace runs where I'm not killing myself. I just get much more insights there. For me, the boundary period between waking and sleeping. So in the, at night, I have no productivity at all. But what I do is I now assemble the ingredients. I'm like, here are the things that I would like answers to. And I think it was uh, Edison said, never go to sleep without a request to your unconscious. And then I wake up in the morning, often incredibly annoyingly early at like 5am and have a bunch of solutions, all of which seem completely obvious at the same time. And so there are things that you can kind of program. But the the irony of slack and the Greeks called this Kronos time and Kairos time and Kronos time is Moloch, which also ironically is the other name for Moloch in these traditions, Saturn Kronos and Moloch, they've all been equivalently the same god, the god of time. And then there's Kairos time, which is sort of the inspiration time, which you just can't control when it comes. You can create the you can create the, the kind of circumstances where it shows up, but you can't force it to show up because it just it just doesn't play by the same rules. The rub, and the thing that I think is is most neglected in our circle and really is i think really quite important is the idea that nothing nothing will emerge into a space that's full nothing grows into a space nothing you know if the womb is full the baby will not grow into it right but that space is often created by a breakage by a vulnerability and a lot of people who i talk I tell about my story, they're like, wow, you lived through, you know, two years of constant suicidal ideation. You must be so resilient now. And I'm like, absolutely not. I am not resilient at all. I am much more vulnerable than I ever was, and I feel the world much more keenly than I ever did. And I think a a big reason for my crisis was having a son, something I haven't contextualized, right? But when you have a child, you make a bargain that your life is going to be destroyed if that child that child dies, right? You 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 will you will mourn that child with the same intensity with which you loved them, right? You create a spot of vulnerability in yourself that would would literally ruin your life, right? And that, That is the shadow side of the love that you feel for that person. And so, like, when you think about the slack in your day, that slack has to include some kind of conception of vulnerability. And that's something David White talks about a lot. But we do not talk about at all because our society does not accept vulnerability in any formal context. Right. And so when you think about like you will not be able to take a message in from the world unless you are vulnerable and open to that message, particularly if it's a harsh message. And it's something you and I talk about all the time. It's what I think makes you a great writer, is that, you know, we joke about, like, every time we hit send on an email, we're just waiting to get kicked in the nuts, right? But And that's an, that's an unavoidable precondition for doing good creative work, which I think you do, right? Because otherwise, there isn't enough of you in it. And so I think, like... A very long-winded answer and kind of doesn't really answer the question, but like when people think about Slack in their day, it's sort of anti-productivity because there has to be some sort of vulnerability
0: in there. It means, or maybe some sort of sacrifice or or some sort of, when you say, I, I, first of all, so I totally agree with the idea around vulnerability and, and I think it, it sort of comes back to, to, are you, is what you're doing meaningful? Like, are you risking something and that doesn't have to be risking money, but are you risking, are you putting something out there? If you're putting something out that feels risky, right? That, that means you're like, it's actually sort of meaningful to you. And it, and it, and there's an opinion there or vulnerability there, there, there's something where, you know, yes, you could get kicked in the nuts. I I actually think at least to me, it's It hasn't happened that much. And I don't want to extrapolate from my personal experience to, you know, to everybody else. But I do think at least some, my experience has been that, that, well, I was going to say the internet, but it's probably just the people that read my stuff on the internet or when, when, the, when there's vulnerability and it's sort of, it's, it already sounds all wrong when it's authentic, right? When, when it's without an agenda, then I think there's it, it, it's few and far between that people are mean about it. However, now that I say it, I'm like this, I really don't want to extrapolate from it too broadly because I think there's there's a lot of other examples on the web. But- no,
1: I'm very, I'm very comfortable extrapolating for you because I've made a study of people like you, the good ones like you. And I found, and again, this is a cliche, but it's a cliche, I believe, if you've opened your heart and are following your heart, things will work out very well for you. You cannot do it without opening your heart because you will not be receptive to the signals that are going into your heart. But but if your heart is open, it will receive those signals. And I think I mean that kind of literally, which is weird, right? But I do mean it kind of literally, like physiologically, right? There needs to be a certain openness and vulnerability to the world. And then it's the following part where you're following your interests. But that is also another macro theme, right? Which is one, you're following your interests. Two, that needs to be vulnerable. But three. The fact that you're saying that you've laid yourself open and then haven't been kicked in the nuts very often is also this core tenet of spirituality that when you leap into the abyss of the universe, you will find out that it's a feather bed. Now, you don't want to overstate that because the universe can also break you in a million pieces, as it did with me, right? But at the end of the day, you do discover that the ground of being is love, right? That that is the thing that is guiding you, and therefore that is the ultimate experience. So, like... You need to have vulnerability, and you need to be. You need to be. You need to respond to criticism. But it's interesting how seldom that comes when you're being authentic. You actually get most of the criticism when you go after Moloch. At least that's what I look at creators who are obviously doing stuff for the wrong reason. They get shit on for the right reasons.
0: That's that's okay. That is so interesting because I just realized. So first of all, I just realized. Yeah, we drew of the line all the way back to like well how do you follow your interests well first you're open and then you can actually receive the signal so to speak and then yes well the the once you have the agenda and and you just follow the abstraction you're like i'm gonna do it x. i'm gonna do it this way right like i have the playbook for how to get rich online or whatever or in hedge funds whatever i'm like i'm not i'm doing a hedge fund because there's money in hedge funds not because I want to solve the market puzzle. i like, and I, I I need to do this like compulsively. No, it's, it's because I, I'm going to make this money. And and maybe a hedge fund is a bad example because it's already like far in the, but still like there's, there's probably like, mo- like you see people succeeding in a, in a monetary sense where, and, and it's for, for me, the risk is always that I'm, I'm looking at somebody. I'm like, Oh, they're succeeding. They're making a lot of money or they're getting a lot of, you know, uh, recognition or whatever. And, and therefore, I, I look at that. And I'm like, okay, so I want to learn from this. And it's, but if it's somebody who does it for purely that sort of, you know, the, the financial motivation, it's you have to be careful that you don't, you know, take away a, a lesson or, or, or adopt something that's actually, you know, it runs counter to what you're trying to do. Like that, I, I just feel like I have to process what you just said because, like, it's it's so true that when I when you open yourself to the criticism and you put something out, we're like, God, I really worry about this. That's when you're not getting the negative feedback. And and when you, at least when I stray from that path, I'm like, this is what people want to hear. Or like, this is going to do well. That's when you're like getting to people like, ah, you know, like you kind of, it, it becomes obvious, right? Like that, that it's just done with the, I don't want to call it the wrong motivation, but when it's, when it's, it, when it, yeah, when it's not, I don't know, I'm, my language really fails me with this, but like, I'm like, because yes,
1: you're trying to articulate something that cannot be articulated, which is the problem of this entire conversation is that you have to use deeply inadequate placeholder words. But what you're talking about is all the things that we've just been talking about, right? Which is that when you watch a guy that's targeting Moloch, right? He may be fabulously wealthy, but you can tell he's hollow. Dead eyes, right? But the same person can be getting fabulously wealthy because they just love trading. They just love it. It sets them. It sets them on fire. And so, just saying rich man sad is unbelievably dumb and reductive, right? And because I've met people of, of, of ludicrous net worth who are just super crazy happy because they're just following something that makes them just makes them so 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 happy, right? Again, Moloch Slack. When you're chasing something intrinsic, you'll never get bored of it because you're on the path. You'll never get bored. And you'll get rewarded for it one way or another. But again, like it's the nuance that it has to be something that the world needs, right? Like if I was, if there were no constraints on my process, every article I wrote, I wrote would be like a million times more pretentious, even than what I write now, and also would be like four times longer. So no one would read them, and they would suck. So like the fact that I know that I work for a financial institution and I have to fold some of that stuff in helps. There is. No creativity without constraints you would not love your children if you knew they were immortal, right like there has to be some sort of constraint on this um,
0: yeah, I have to I have to get better with those constraints i I hear you but but I just think it's it's funny right because I that this whole I don't know if rich man said is that a, is that a meme I didn't know it, but it's very poignant it's but it is true like I run across this all the time when I'm like I'm writing about someone like oh, there's something to learn from this person like they were very successful at X and then you realize like okay, but the personal life was a wreck or they did something shitty, right? And and then it becomes a balance because well, I don't want to learn from this person how to be a dad or how to be a husband or whatever, how to have a lot of friends like there's but it also doesn't so you could then discard that, right? And Something that I loved about like richer, wiser, happier was that like William made like the very conscious choice, like, okay, I'm only going to have people in this book where I admire kind of the person holistically, like they're good at investing. And then also the way they build a business and live their personal life. And they, like there's philosophical wisdom to their journey. And I respect that. I think it's very rare to find that. And I often find that like, well, here's this person and they're really good at this thing. And I can still try i try to take like a nuanced view i'm like well, there's still something to learn from them it's just you know you want to just learn this one thing and and i i don't know how do you how do you deal with that because i'm sure it shows up too with like other teachers like outside the investment like even spiritual teachers there's a lot of people who like have something good to preach but as a person they're still flawed right
1: just Character, Your own character, as your own character evolves, you will be able to discern what, what comes out of them and you will not discard as readily. And like that is, again, the same principle, which is that you never, ever, ever, ever worship the prophet. Right. Think about all the times that a human has put themselves at the apex of a system and how utterly catastrophic it's been almost every single time like that's why it was the divine right of kings right is that like I am not I don't worship me worship what I represent right and it should only ever be the message and and not even the whole message just the bits of the message that resonate and I get like major cognitive dissonance from the same person saying incredibly amazing things and incredibly dumb things, often one sentence to the next, right? And it it, and that's that's on me, right? And Like I don't know. I think about my own. I think about your your own parents, right? You you go through this stage of like unquestionable adulation. Then when you're a teenager, you're like, oh my god, they're the dumbest people in the world. And then you just learn to integrate the best and worst of them. And it's sort of this 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 universal feature. Another one I find everywhere, which is taking something in, deconstructing it, and then reconstructing it with with your own individual flavor added to it that's a pattern that i see everywhere and is a pattern that is is crazy fractal and interesting but it's also how we should behave towards gurus i think
0: yeah i i i'm stuck on this Uh, i i agree and i'm stuck on this like bruce lee quote it was like adopt what is useful discard what is useless add what is uniquely yours and then like you'd have to add you know like and integrate it all in in some fashion like make it a complete whole but like I I totally agree and like that's that's and and frankly that's what I enjoy about your work where it's like you go into all these rabbit holes you pull out the couple of thoughts out of like you know I don't know how long McGilchrist's book is but it's very long like I'm still stuck in like the single digit percentage right it's like thousands of pages and you're like you're pulling out like there's a lot of good ideas in there but you if you pull out a few and you connect them to something else you're already doing quote unquote the world but like certainly your audience like a huge service right like and they didn't even know they wanted that and like most of them won't read the thousand pages right and i will eventually but (laughs) it's gonna take a long time but like just just sort of that yeah that the and like just i mean is how do you think about your own how do you think about your own function or your own occupation like is it synthesis is it like that like following the curiosity like a do you to do self-describe as a writer like what if you if you had to like put a bow on it can can you do that or like do you leave it rather leave it undefined
1: not really i do a really bad job at that i joke i'm a curiosity shepherd which is a, a term i stole from maria popper who i think is the best at that job in the world in terms of synthesizing ideas from different traditions and finding universalities like i woke up two days ago and realized what i wanted to do with my life and i think uh, this wonderful poem from David White where he talks about like the the point where you meet the world is actually pretty small and most people get blinded by the fact that it's pretty large and they've got an infinite number of options but the thing that you can do that's uniquely yours that the world needs is actually a pretty small point you just need to find it. And I say just finding it's like the hardest thing in the world because often it des- it involves destroying yourself to find it, right? Always destroying the ego, right? Letting that unconscious charisma flow through, you often have to get the ego out of the way and it kills you, right? At least that was certainly my experience, right? What I want to do with my life is help people out of Moloch into Slack, right? Is help people out of stuck places, and into a different stage where they can get themselves out. Because I saw the wasted human potential I saw from people at the top of their fitness landscape just going around in infinite loops that couldn't get themselves out because they didn't know how to trust trust their hearts effectively like it, it it broke me it broke me myself in my own life and it broke me to see it happen particularly in finance because that cohort gets so little compassion from anyone else because they're materially rich but actually they often have it harder than most other groups because they're materially rich. but what's interesting is that like you know arrogantly even though that sounds like quite a small job and I don't think I'm going to be that good at it for a long time, you actually realize that is sort of the meaning of life which is help help people find their way out of this kind of egoic very very abstracted form of existence into something where they can finally co-create and I believe that's the purpose of every human life. And in fact, that is right, left, right. So right, left, right is, so McGilchrist thinks that you take information in from the outside world on the right hemisphere, you cut it up into categories on the left, and then you place it back into its global context with the right hemisphere again. So he says, you listen to a piece of music, you learn the notes, and then you play it creatively and intuitively that's literally how you learn anything that's the that's the definition of intuition you take you attend 3000 management meetings you unconsciously work out where all the patterns are And then you gain this intuitive ability to determine what's true when you're interacting with another person. But it's also in this sort of weird fractal sense, the trajectory of a human life that we go through this stage where we're uncritically in the flow as children, we're completely in the moment. Then we get more and more and more abstracted as we chase the wrong things. And then we break back into the flow again, but this time with a strong enough ego where we can co-create something and synthesize. And we have the skill set that we created through all the ego. Nonsense! In order to do something incredibly meaningful, it's the prodigal son, right? Like it's the guy that comes back to God with the ability to do something different because he straight he strayed away, and it's this crazy thing that once you see this right, left, right. You see it everywhere. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes says, you know, I would give not a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the complexity, the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And they say the same about enlightenment. You know, before enlightenment, the mountains are mountains. After, in- during enlightenment, the mountains aren't mountains. And then after enlightenment, the mountains are mountains again. Right? It's this. It's this completely changed appreciation of the whole which you get after a series of synthesis. And that's all I'm trying to do is take in all of these ideas and synthesize them into something, if not totally new, easier for people to consume than like a
0: 1,400-page book. Yeah. Wow. So first of all, I'm, I'm just going to say like the way you f- just phrased all of this was like complete alignment between what you said and like I connected zero dissonance. So I was like, this is this is spoken very like I'm like, OK, I'm super excited. And like it's also if that isn't the pitch that gets people to to sign up, then then I don't know what does, because. Yeah, that is that journey is scary, right? Like it's the, you know. <laughs> And I don't want to say the journey to enlightenment, because like, I'm not enlightened, like, I'm, you know, this is like, that's, that's a big, big word, but like the journey from the fitness landscape from this local peak where you are, and you're doing a thing, and it's kind of working, but it's not really working. And it's but it's too scary to leave that world. And it's too, you know, you're too busy, you're kind of too shunned off. And, and you need somebody I don't know what the right term is, but to show you that, Hey, there are these other ideas. or there is this other path and like, okay. And like, you don't have to, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the right term is. Right. Because you don't want to like, you don't want to nudge people there. You don't want to like people are that there's, it's not your job to get somebody moving in any kind of direction, but you can show people what else is out there or like, well, what else is possible or that, Hey, wait a second. Like all these ancient ideas, no, maybe you can put them into more relatable language, right? And like make it easier to access. You can, you can highlight something and make it easier to access. Maybe that's a. Well,
1: that, that's the role of the prophet, right? Is that all he does is he shows you a little bit of slack, right? So what happens is, is you're in the wrong place, right? You're running at 100% capacity and you're running at 100% capacity because you know if you amped it down to 20%, your life could explode because your body would start to be like, dude, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. You're at the top of the fitness landscape. Anything at the top of a, a fitness landscape just repeats the same behavior then eventually dies. It's, a, it's a, a true of all complex adaptive systems, right? And so what happens when you're at the top of the landscape, as it did for me, was your unconscious starts to give you signals you want to get out. But because our culture disregards them and because of the terror that it involves, I started getting all these psychosomatic illnesses that were unsolvable. But And the reason why they were unsolvable, Solvable was because I needed to actually move, right? Like I needed to move away from the thing that was stressing me. What it was is often listening to a couple of things and reading a couple of things that caused that tiny little mind fracture where you're like, ah shit, that's true. Man, that's true. And it's gonna, and it's gonna break something open. And when you hear it, you follow it because you just know it's true. And that guy showed you outside of the paradigm and he carves that tiny bit of slack. And the problem is, is that again like i hope people understand what we mean by fitness landscapes because i think they're one of the deepest concepts in the world but like Moloch is the thing that drives you up to the top of the peak. It's necessary, right? Of the local
0: fitness landscape. The fitness landscape, right? Maybe frame it for just like a second. Yeah, yeah. So
1: So the fitness landscape is like, if you imagine a tabletop, but with mountains and valleys all over it, the point of any organism is to get to the highest local, but the highest global peak. But what happens is you can get to the top of a a smaller peak and then get stuck there repeating the same behavior. And so what you then have to do is go back down into a valley so that you can... explore an adjacent and potentially higher peak. But the problem, as you can tell, is, is if it's Moloch that takes you up to the top of the peak, the evolution of cooperation that we understand as, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, what takes you back down is never going to be rationality, and it's never going to be competitive competitiveness. It's, it's never going to be anything that took you up to the top. It's going to have to be something radically different, which is why all turning points look irrational, and all, all moves involve the sacrifice of something. Thing that was very important to you getting up there. Most often money, right? Or prestige or status, right? All the things that are holding you in are typically the stuff that got you up to the top. So you have to give up Moloch one way or another to get back down into the valley, which is this really shitty moment for people because they realize they've only got a choice of two pains, right? You've either got the pain of stagnation, which I saw a lot, which is basically like I'm in the wrong place, but I'm going to grind it out and I'm going to drink a lot because I don't really want to have to think about it, right? And you turn into sort of this unformed human being that that hates himself and everyone hates with the dead solar size or you sacrifice everything and take enormous risks and risk that it actually doesn't work out but to explore the adjacent possible right and to follow the the voice that's telling you that it's time to move and neither of them are easy right that's and they're both they're both like wildly impossible and both can be like the you know the worst experiences of your life but one of them is guaranteed to kill you and the other one is not
0: this is brilliant because i think i just found the the title uh, for this episode which is tom morgan the voice that's telling you to move oh and,
1: shit uh, <laughs> i am not, no, but I thought I'm not legally liable <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. no but i think it's it's fantastic because you do want on the one hand you want the voice that's like hey you could move just like check out these other things right like the curiosity sherpa on the other hand you want it to come from somebody who can firsthand tell you that listen this isn't easy or you know like I mean, it's not riskless in, in the sense that like y- yes you 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 are coming down from that local peak and like that means giving up things that's uncomfortable like you mean may mean giving up money or status or like you know relationships like and, and you talk about like destroying your old models a lot like it it involves the destruction of things that you treasure or or, or letting go of things that you treasure and it's not trivial by any means and then there's always the fact that like i struggled with that where like you know time time passes and and like you can you can explore in an ex- my fear would tell me that well i can explore a lot of valleys and like is that really like you know sometimes the the the, the dead-end job and the drinking maybe that wasn't such a bad idea i'm like i'm like no i know this isn't true but i still hear the voice Right. And so I think you need the support of other people to help you navigate that process, like doing it by yourself, I think is, is, yeah, at least for me, that it strikes me as very treacherous. If you don't have people who are like, you know, not not telling what you do, but like just who are kind of there so you can get it out of your head. And and so the voice that's telling you to move.
1: Well, to uh, to talk about voices in your head, the. The thing about voices that is very interesting is the conceptualization from a Gilchrist that the left hemisphere has language and and sexy language, right? Good syntax, really articulate words. And because those are the things that we use to manipulate the world, like a predator. The predator's tools in the modern era language, right? Because it gives us power, which is a really interesting conceptualization. Abstractions give us power. Sorry, abstractions are Moloch. And and you know the 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 bargain you make to Moloch, who is the Canaanite god of child sacrifices, throw whatever you want on the throw whatever you value most onto the furnace, and I will grant you power. And whatever you value most often is is your time, right? You will sit there in an office dying in return for your salary, right? And that literally is the sacrifice that you choose to make. But that voice often is very loud and incredibly rational and persuasive and articulate. The problem is, is that the right hemisphere, which is connected to truth, which is the voice of the shaman, often sounds kind of cliched uh, because it's speaking the truth inarticulately, but it's also very quiet. It's quiet in most people, like literally. And so like you have this conceptualization of the voice of conscience, which often is like a physical sensation because your right hemisphere is also connected to your heart center and is connected to your body in a different way. And you'll start to get signals from your body and this tiny little voice that nags at you being like, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. But it's very easy for the for the voice with a million times less information to be like, here are these incredibly well-rehearsed rationalizations for why you should why you should not do that, which is another reason why these slack practices are useful, because anything that puts you in your body gives you just a higher probability of getting clear signals. To give you a precise example from my own life is that before, the thing that kicked off the awakening process and the breakdown simultaneously was I was told by a functional medicine doctor to go on a 30-day elimination or maybe three month three month elimination diet. So a serious elimination diet, which is uh, really
0: elimination everything. diet w- eliminating what?
1: Everything. It's the least fun thing in the world. You basically I did a year long like uh, certificate in functional medicine to to kind of get a better understanding of these things. And with no disrespect, there's an enormous amount of nonsense in this field and I'm not a nutritionist. But like it basically you just cut out all the fun stuff for a very long period of time. And the problem with the fun stuff like sugar and alcohol and caffeine to a lesser extent is that like it's just disrupting the signals. And if you cut those out for a long time, if indeed you're getting signals from your gut, if indeed you're getting signals from your body, you're just going to hear them a little bit more clearly because you've got to give that right hand voice more of a fighting chance.
0: Are you, are you saying me eating a box box of cookies is I'm um, I'm trying to not hear that voice that's trying to tell me something over the crunching the crunching sound i i i'm joking but like yes i, um, well, this is a time I to
1: demonstrate massive hypocrisy because i eat like crap and i drink a lot <laughs> so like
0: well you're you're coming out of the valley right now you yeah, you've maybe, deserved maybe. a little bit of uh of a reward but well, tom this was uh fantastic i really enjoyed it i i always learn um a lot from you and i really appreciate that you're taking the time to to share it was a
1: delight thank you for having me